It's so good to be with you. It's so lovely to be together in a a room with some of you and then online with many others and uh, just to be able to experience Francis's singing voice for the first time and Ads's intensely creepy pirate voice, which didn't sound at all like a pirate to me, but I won't say what it sounded like, but it was pretty threatening. And Ollie Allison's excitement about sitting at the end of a row, which has just made my day as well. Um, but it's lovely to be with you. We're going to be in, in, again, back in 1 Corinthians 11. So if you have a Bible and can turn to 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 17, I'm going to read it. And then we're going to continue in this series called The Table and look, as Sally said, about what it means for us to look in as we approach the Lord's Supper what it means to look in and how that actually isn't as creepy and intense and weird as it might sound. It's actually incredibly important. But we're going to look at what it does mean and what it doesn't mean as we reflect on this passage. We're going to read 1 Corinthians 11 and starting at verse 17. Paul says, But in the following instructions, I don't commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you must be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we wouldn't be judged. But when we're judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we might not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it won't be for judgment about the other things I will give directions when I come. This is the word of God. So we're in this series called The Table and we've seen how the Lord's Supper, sharing bread and wine together, which is often called communion or breaking bread or the Eucharist or whatever, involves looking back and looking out and looking up and looking around and forward. And this week we're going to look at what it means for us to look in. And I think this is the, easily the aspect that's the most easily misunderstood in the Lord's Supper. You've got to look inside. You've got to practice some degree of self-examination or if you want introspection, there's an appropriate looking in that you need to do when you approach the Lord's Supper. But I think this is the easiest bit to misunderstand in the whole deal because I think it very easily sounds extremely intense and gloomy 
And this is, the, this is what Paul says, we just, so we've just read it, but just so we're clear on which passage, which bit of the passage we're zeroing in on. Verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine themselves and then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For if you eat and drink without discerning the body, you eat and drink judgment on yourself. And if you're not careful, that phrase, like let, examine yourself to see, and in, if you eat in an unworthy manner, that's not okay. That could very easily sound like what was happening was Paul was saying, you need to attain a certain standard of righteousness before you're allowed anywhere near this stuff. You need to be good enough, otherwise you can't approach. That's what it could sound, isn't it? Examine yourself, are you worthy? And it's like you have to be at a certain standard of performance in order to be able to approach the table. Have you ever been to one of those restaurants where they, you have to wear a certain standard of dress to be allowed in? Have you had that? I've only done it once. I'm not that posh, but on one occasion, Valentine's Day, went to this very fancy restaurant in London where you have to wear a jacket. And I don't mind wearing a jacket. I'm kind of nice dressing up, but you go in and they let you in. You think, oh, look, I'm surrounded. And in fact, Gordon Ramsay was eating at the same time on another table. So I felt like this must be an amazing place. But then a few minutes into the meal, I was a little hot. And so I just stood up to take off my jacket and out of nowhere, somebody appeared and very diplomatically just sort of ushered the jacket back on and made me sit down again. I was like, wow, where did you come from? And I hadn't even noticed because you don't, do you? You just think I'm a bit hot and suddenly they appear. And it could almost make it sound a bit like that. You've got to scrub up really sharp and oh no, if you're not up to this level, if you're not smart enough, you're not worthy enough, if you haven't checked that you are, tick all of these boxes, no communion for you. And that's, that's how some of us read that passage, I think. And so I want to ask, what on earth is going on here? I don't think it is that, actually, but we'll come to why. But what's happening here, and what do we need to do about it in our practice of communion? And so what I want to do is just re- address three related questions as we work through the passage. What Paul is saying to the Corinthians, specifically. What's he saying to them? What Paul is not saying to us, and then what Paul is saying to us, and what we need to do about it. What Paul's saying to them, what he's not saying to us, and then what he is saying to us. I hope that will help us just disentangle some of this stuff. What Paul is saying to the Corinthians is he's addressing a very specific challenge that is probably not the challenge that mostly we have when we practice this together, in the specifics of what happens here. Because the issue at Corinth is that people are using the Lord's Supper selfishly and probably particularly the richer members are using the Lord's Supper as a way of almost reinforcing the divisions that the Lord's Supper is meant to destroy. And so this is a very divided church, which you read the letter as a whole, you see it. They're divided about everything, about leadership, about who's, you know, they basically trade off the different groups in the church against one another. They're divided about idol food and spiritual gifts, and some of them are suing each other, sexual ethics. It's a mess. They are arguing and splitting on all kinds of lines. And in that context, Paul addresses the division and says, verse 17, when you come together, it's not for the better, It's for the worse. In the first place, when you gather as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe it. Your meetings, he says, do more harm than good when you get together. Now, I think corporate meetings have been really hard for the last 14 or 15 months and impossible for many of us for much of that time. We've had some corporate meetings, but mostly we haven't been able to meet as we wanted to. But I find this verse quite encouraging because it makes me think, well, no matter how difficult they've been or how no matter how strange they've sometimes been, They've never, I don't think, done more harm than good. They've never like, that I would assess this meeting and think, do you know what, that's made everybody in this place less godly than they were when they started. But that's what's happening in Corinth. 
Paul's saying this is a disaster because what you've done is you have turned the Lord's Supper, which is meant to be the ultimate moment of unity, into something that exacerbates and highlights the divisions between you. Verse 20, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you're eating. For in eating, each one goes ahead with their own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate people who have nothing? So imagine we have a church. I don't, my guess is we have a church here of about 100 people, 15 households perhaps, households were bigger in those days, meeting in the homes of one of their richer members. Right? Most of us probably don't have houses to, that could seat 100 people, um, but you know, they're crowded in and a wealthier person might just about be able to squeeze them all in with the courtyard and so on. Most people in the church, very poor, but there are a handful of significantly wealthier people. And the meeting takes place around the table, but it's more like a potluck dinner than what we would typically do. So people might bring their own food. They probably come, so a wealthier person comes in with a very nice bit of, you know, like, like a, you know, when, you know, we have a, a gathered church picnic or something and some people go, oh, they've got that and they've been to Waitrose or whatever it might be. And, you know, and those sorts of, it's like you've got that, but in a culture where most people can't afford anything like that. And so what seems to have happened is that the richer people are gathering together and eating great food and drinking and drinking a lot to the point where some of them are even getting drunk in communion. Meanwhile, the poorer people are left, most people are left over here isolated and without anything like the same access and the moment of unity has become a moment of division that's the problem it's meant to be the high point of the christian service where everybody goes this is a this is one because they all share of the same loaf look they take one one loaf and they break it and it's like everybody eats from the same loaf this is a picture of the unity of the church they all share from one cup and meanwhile that moment has become a disaster of division and factionalism. And Paul is furious and says, if you want to eat, have it at home. But you're not, don't you dare bring your, your, your divisions and your selfishness into this moment. It's a holy aspect of the church and you have defiled it with the way you're handling it. And it's in that context that Paul gives this call for self-examination. And he spells out the significance of the Lord's Supper which is what we've been looking at the last few weeks. You know, we've got to look up and we've got to look back and all those things. And then he brings this application to them. Verse 27, whoever therefore, based on all I've said about how serious this is, that Jesus gave it to us as his holy meal, whoever, as a result of all that, whoever eats and drinks the, or the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty. So you should examine yourselves and then eat the bread and drink the cup. Because if you eat and drink without discerning the body, which I think in this setting means the church, if you eat and drink, the, if you're having this and you're not thinking about how the whole body of Christ is affected by the way you're doing it, you're actually eating and drinking judgment on yourself. So, verse 33 when you come together to eat, wait for one another. That's what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. Now, my experience of being in this church for many years, I don't attend all the time now, but I've been in the church, for, I've never seen anything like this in the last 20 years. I've never seen, but certainly people getting drunk because we generally use grape juice anyway. Um, so that's not normally been an issue, but I've also never seen this sort of idea that we bring our own stuff and therefore you get a clique over here with lots of money and privilege and another group over there who doesn't. So I don't think that application if in that sense is our problem, but what Paul's teaching has profound significance for the way we approach the table but we need to do a little bit of work to make the link between what they were doing and what Paul said they should do and what we are doing and what Paul says we should do. 
And before looking for what, we, what Paul is saying to us, I think we first of all, I just want to address a couple of things that I think Paul is not saying that are easy misunderstandings from this story or this passage. One of the things it does not mean we have to do is for a gloomy, introspective, self-obsessed, intense cloud to descend upon the meeting as soon as communion starts. Right? That's, that's, when you examine yourself, I've seen this numerous times because of phrases like this. I've seen this numerous times, in, not, not just, I mean, in many churches, right? Everyone's having a great time worshiping God and we're singing and celebrating and saying, your goodness is running after, running after. And then somebody goes, right, now it's time for communion. And instantly the, key, the pads transition into a minor key and everybody sits down and looks suitably glum and they put their heads in between their knees and the, everything, the mood shifts and they all start reflecting on how sinful they've been. And they stay there for several minutes while things are passed along the aisles and they whisper inaudible things to each other that are so quiet, no one quite knows what they are. And then after enough time has passed, the band gradually transition back into the happy key and everybody stands up and goes, yes, communion's over, back to happy, back to happy and starts singing, your goodness, and so on. That kind of thing has happened quite a lot, particularly in evangelical churches, which perhaps do this in that, sort of serve, in the, in that context in the service. Now, that's not, I don't think, what Paul is saying. I don't think Paul is talking at all about a mood of gloom and introspection as you are coming to the table. Another thing I don't think it means is I don't think it means a line-by-line inventory of all the things you've done wrong in the last week or month such that your focus as you're approaching the table is on the sin of Andrew rather than the grace of Christ. I don't know that's Paul's intention here. But I think probably again you may have experienced that or you may have been formed by it at some point, either in, the, in your church background or maybe just coming in and assuming what it was or reading a passage like this. But I don't think that's the intention. I, I call it the, the airport security approach to the Lord's Supper, which is what you do is you come into the, come into the church building and you, you, know, you check in, you know, in airport security, you check in your suitcase and go, that's gone. So I don't have to worry. And that's where hopefully any sharp objects I have are in the suitcase. So they're going into the hold of the plane. So I'm not going to get yelled at about that. And then you come through and you go in the long snaky, snaky line, which will now take about 11 hours to get on the plane in the next few months. But you go through the long line and then you put your hand luggage on the scanner. You think, I think I've got that in there. And you, you rummage through it and check that it's got the toothpaste and the deodorant because obviously you could easily hijack a plane with toothpaste. Um, so you make sure you get that out of there as well. And so all of that goes through the scanner. And then you rummage through your pockets. You think, oh no, of course, you know, yeah, I've got a set of keys and a phone. Very dangerous to everybody on this plane. So I'll put them in the little, little gray box that then goes through. And you do that. And then having th- you think you've cleared yourself of all of your anything dangerous and risky at all you've examined yourself thoroughly and then you go and step through that thing and go like this and it goes beep and you're like no what was it what was it was it the belt have I got a buckle on my belt is it the shoe could I hijack a plane with a shoe and you have to go back and take all of those things off as well you eventually allowed through in your underpants and then you're allowed to get it all back you've been through something like that experience right now I think some people think that the approach to the Lord's Supper is a bit like that with sin. It's like, okay, so I've repented of the big thing. That was this thing. Okay, yes, thank the Lord. And now, if there's something else, examine myself. And only then can I approach the table. Have I got this? Did I nail that? And I've identified this. Because if I haven't removed all of these things, the beeper will go off. And I won't be allowed in. And I might be approaching the table and go beep. And everyone will know. Well, maybe no one will know, but I'll know that I've just got this hidden sin that the the toothpaste or the belt or something has set off the beeper and I'm not allowed at the table. Paul is not encouraging you to do that. Paul is encouraging you, telling you, to approach the Lord's Supper by doing what Christians have always done, 
which is to repent of our sins and to believe in Jesus. That's what he wants for you as you approach the table. He says, examine yourself because if you're at, you see the people in Corinth, it's not like they were these sort of massively hidden sins that no one even knew were there, they needed a root out. The problem in Corinth was you are doing something quite flagrant that is bringing harm to the whole body and disgrace to the name of Jesus by acting as a source of division. And you need to, you need to repent of that. And if you don't repent of that, then this will be destructive for you. In other words, the call to the table is a call one of repentance and faith, actually just like the call to baptism is a call of repentance and faith, I think. The two sacraments work the same way like that. The call of Christ is to say, come to me. I wanna give you this wonderful gift. I wanna wash you. I wanna give you food. I wanna give you wine of joy. I want to give you these gifts, but I need you to be repentant and full of faith as you come. And so if you are, repentant and full of faith, then you come to the table with expectation and joy, knowing that your sins are washed away. And what I think can help us here is, if I dare say it in this context, is the Anglicans, right? Because the Anglicans, and many of us have got some Anglicanism somewhere in our backstory, but the Anglicans do this very well because what they do is they manage to get the repenting and confessing of sin done before they approach the table. So you don't end up with this thing where the elements are being passed down rows and you're still reflecting on your sin. What they instead they do is they say, we're not even gonna ask whether you think you might have sinned in certain ways because we know you have. So we are all gonna confess. And actually last time I preached, I was preaching on confession by coincidence, but three or four months back and we did this series on the forgotten arts. I was talking, we all confess our sins together because we're all sinners and we've all done all these things we shouldn't have done. And I know what some of them are and some of them I've done without even knowing it. And so I'm gonna confess that sin. And then I'm gonna receive forgiveness from God, which the, the person running the meeting will pronounce over me in the name of Jesus, I'm forgiven. And then having, for, having all my sins forgiven, having confessed and received forgiveness, I'm now gonna approach the table to receive the gifts of God that confirm I'm forgiven, that demonstrate what his blood does for me, what his broken body achieves for me. So I'm not coming to the table going, oh, man, this is just such a tangle of emotions I'm feeling because I wanna be thankful to Jesus, but I also feel so guilty about this. No, we come to the table saying, isn't it amazing? I've just confessed my sin and I've just been completely forgiven because that's what Christ promises will happen whenever I confess my sin because he's faithful and just. And so I'm gonna approach now and receive the gift confirming that his broken body and his shed blood take away all of my sin and unite me with him. And so I can approach with joy. It's what I would call the prodigal son approach to the table. Right? The prodigal son lives the sinful life and then comes to his senses and goes, I am hungry. Right? And it is significant that he's longing for food. We'll see in, in the sort of the prodigal son's trajectory is his hunger is what drives him back to his father. I'm hungry. I need to be sustained. I am weak and I need food. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to arise and go to my father. It's one of the most beautiful lines in the Bible. I will, it's what every Christian can pray every morning as you approach God in prayer or reading scripture, I will arise and go to my father. He's hungry. He arises and goes to his father. He says, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. And the father doesn't then say, well, what we need to do now is have a period of reflection about how sinful you've been while eating together. He says, you've, you've sinned. Okay, I wanna come and give you a hug. I wanna affirm you of my forgiveness and my love and affection for you. I wanna give you the robe. I wanna give you the ring and I wanna give you a roast. And I wanna come and have you into the feast. And as you're in the feast, you will experience what it means to be welcome in my family and accepted as my son. 
because the mood, if you like, of repentance and confession has already been addressed in the pigsty and on the road as he turns to his father and says, I've sinned. The father doesn't want to leave him in that place of sorrow and misery. He wants to lift him from it and say, come in and receive the feast as a means of knowing my love for you. And that I think is how we can approach the table. Lord, I'm sorry, I've sinned against you, but I don't want to stay there. I will confess my sin. I will arise and go to my father. And having confessed, I will receive his forgiveness and then come to the table with joy, knowing what it means for me that my sins have been washed away. Self-examination is looking in, if you like, is something that Paul talks about in, in his second letter to this church as well. In 2 Corinthians 13 and verse five, he says, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or don't you realize that Jesus Christ is in you Unless, of course, you fail to meet the test. So I want you to look into your heart and see, is there faith in here? That's all I'm looking for. I'm looking for you to look into your heart and say, okay, I may not know all the things I've done wrong this week. I'm sure I know some of them. But actually, my self-examination consists of looking into my heart and saying, is there, am I repentant for my sin? And do I believe in the Lord Jesus? It's Exactly what we've done for many, I don't know how many hundreds of people I've seen baptized in this church. And we've asked all of them the same question for decades. Do you repent of your sin? And do you believe in, trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And they say, yes, you baptize. That's the question that the Lord's Supper poses to you as well. If you're breezing up to the table and go, I'm not repentant for sin. I'm not even sure I believe in Jesus. Then you should not come because you will eat and drink judgment on yourself. But if you come and say, I will arise and go to my father. I have sinned against heaven and against you but I believe in you and I trust in you to take away my sin and forgive me and welcome me back. Can I come to the table? God says, that's exactly why I've operated that whole feast. That's what it's for. In that sense, Paul is not looking for the airport security check. It's more like what happens when the doctor asks you, have you got any allergies because of something they might wanna prescribe you? It's that kind of self-examination. If you, have, you must have had that. I've got two allergies. I'm allergic to micropore and cetrin, should you care, which I doubt you do. And so every time they go, ask that question, they say, are you allergic to anything? If you need to have an operation or something, you say, yes, I'm allergic to micropore and cetrin. And they're not asking that to say, are you worthy in the sense of, does this answer merit my medical care? What they're doing is they're wanting to check that nothing they give you is gonna react with something that's inside you already and make it worse. They don't want the medicine to function like a poison, which is what happens when I have septum. My face just goes purple, like bing. So I just never use it. And in a way, Paul is saying, the communion could be that to you if you are unrepentant or unbelieving. This meal, which is meant to be a medicine, could become a poison to you and to others if you approach the meal and you're not repentant of your sin and you're not full of faith in Christ. It's not asking you to check every last little thing. Just confess it all. Just blanket confession. Lord, I've sinned. I know some of the things. I know I did this, this. Some of them I don't know. I have sinned. I'm sorry, Father. Please forgive me. I trust you because of the blood of Jesus for me. Then you come to the table with joy. And Paul is saying, verse 29, anyone who eats and drinks the body, without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. That's strong talk. But Paul is saying this medicine could become poison to you if you use it flippantly, divisively, selfishly, unrepentantly. It could actually do you more harm than you think. So be careful. Don't be flippant with the table. But Paul is saying this, the body and blood of the Lord. It's serious stuff. 
And you will consume judgment on yourself if you don't realize what it is and what God is going to try and do to you and with you through it. But if instead you approach and say, yeah, I'm, I've sinned and I don't even know all the things I've done. But Lord, I'm coming to you for forgiveness and hope and restoration. Then you should not only approach, you should approach with joy that you are going to receive life and be fed with Jesus' very body and blood as you do. I'm going to conclude now, but some of you will know that I'm a big fan of the Heidelberg Catechism. It's a, 500 years ago, people thought a lot about the Lord's Supper, more than we many often do today, because it was a big point of division and contention in, in Europe, actually. Like it was people would fall out, and people, you know, wars were fought, fought over this kind of thing in a way that you wouldn't do that today. And they thought particularly hard about the Lord's Supper. And this is what they concluded in the Heidelberg Catechism, which is my favorite expression of this doctrine. And it's really helpful for us just to absorb this for a moment. The question they asked was, who should come to the Lord's table? Answer, those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins, but who nevertheless trust that their sins are pardoned and their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ and who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and lead a better life. Hypocrites and those who are unrepentant, however, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Now that's a one paragraph version of all that I've been trying to explore in this message. That's what I think Paul is teaching us in 1 Corinthians 11. Who, who should come? Well, if you're a hypocrite or you're not repentant, if you're just saying the stuff, but you don't really repentant in your heart, don't come. You shouldn't, because that'll be judgment on you. The people who should come though are people who go, do you know what, I've sinned and I wish I hadn't. I don't want to be a sinner. I've made a lot of mistakes this week, but, what I want to, but I trust that my remaining sins and weaknesses are covered by the suffering and death of Christ. Examine yourself. Look in. Do you believe that? Do you recognize that? Do you recognize, yeah, I've sinned. And yes, I trust that my remaining sins and weaknesses are covered by the suffering and death of the one whose body was broken and bloodshed for me. Do you believe that? Because if you do, I've got great news. This is the body of Jesus broken for you. This is the blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Father, thank you so much for your kindness in arranging for this meal to keep writing on our hearts, even as we strangely can't share it together because at the moment we're in as a culture, Lord, we look forward to even a few weeks to thinking what a wonderful opportunity to do this again or even this evening or whenever it may be. But Lord, we thank you for the gifts of bread and wine or juice to reinforce and underscore for us the power of the forgiveness of Jesus for everybody who recognizes their sin and trusts that you will save them from it. Lord, we are grateful for these gifts and all that they represent and we thank you in Jesus name.